0: This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballerman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now.
1: Hi, this is Mike Ballerman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 223 brought to you in association with Smart and EnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Ifti Nazir, CEO and founder at Vested, that's V-E-S-T-D.com, only one E, to discuss the whole area of managing the company's equity within the company. Ifti and Vested should know a thing or two about this, as they started doing this in 2014 and have thousands of clients on their platform. Equity management as a whole is one of those things which is how hard can it be? We all know that companies sell shares to raise funds and have share option schemes, EISs, SEISs in the UK and need cap tables and the like and so forth. And to me, it's this kind of thing that sounds like a founder will think of it occasionally and otherwise try and forget about it. However, in the modern, over-regulated, over there's no such word, but I just made it up, over micromanaged word, nothing is simple. For most of history commerciality was infinitely simpler. In Habarabi's time, for example, his laws, most of which were commercial precedents in passing, were chiselled on a large two-ton stone, which, as I always say, probably shows that there's some law of conservation of mass when it comes to laws, as if you added all the laws up today and printed them out on paper, it would probably come to two tons, if not more. So you go and have a look at the stone, and that would be that. These days, as you all know, you've got lawyers, accountants, VCs and the fourth. Crawling all over it, ever growing professions simply to cope with ever growing complexity. Anyway, as a result, startups in Hammurabi's day probably didn't need IFTY and Vested's products and services and businesses were way simpler. Today, we are not in Hammurabi's time, which is quite good given that some of his laws were a bit on the draconian side. So let's dive into the topic of everything you ever wanted to know about internal equity management but were too scared to ask, or just like me, spent your life ignoring the detail thereof. Plenty to talk about. So let's get on with the show. Good morning, Ifty. Thank you for joining me on the show
2: today. Good morning, Mike. It's great to be here.
1: Now, as the astute listener may gradually work out, but may not have worked out from that so far, this is a very rare podcast, because off the top of my head, you're the first Yorkshireman on the show, actually. So that's a very notable start to the proceedings, but also uh, talking to someone who isn't a Yorkshireman, we were talking before about a whole bunch of things, I was about to say way more interesting than equity management, of course nothing is more interesting <laughs> than equity management, as I hopefully will have convinced the listeners by the end of the show. But I have to mention Lord Sumption, who was uh, uh, roughly the only member of the establishment, who's doing a good job over the last uh, few years about the uh, state-driven tyranny, and you were telling me a tale about actually having been in Lord Sumption's office, which was curious because you were a chemist back in the day.
2: So yeah, while well, I started life as a chemist I um, had the the opportunity to build my commercial capabilities at, uh, at BP. And so, although a research scientists start off with, they gave me the opportunity to a uh, postgraduate degree in marketing and then move into the commercial sphere. And one of the deals that I put together was reconstituting the North Sea and the infrastructure and sale of uh, gas into Peterhead Power Station. And because we were taking gas rather than from the, this is going to sound really boring, but uh, rather than from the uh, old Magnus field which it had been contracted from, we were now going to bring gas in from the west of Shetlands all the way to the most easterly and northerly field in the North Sea, shove it down into the reservoir, pump it out and then sell it to Scottish Power under the old agreement and the old price, it was quite a, a stunner.
1: Oh, I see. So as you were so busy sort of um, getting your hands sticky with all this oil stuff, you presumably hadn't noticed, and I think this was one of the critiques, and there still is a snobbery around assumption at his time on the Supreme Court, that Sumption wasn't really a lawyer. I mean, as I understand, he was an an academic who suddenly decided to become a lawyer and then about 10 minutes later they put him on the Supreme Court and thereby putting the nose out of joint of countless barristers who'd worked up the hard way for several decades and never made it to the Supreme Court. So did he actually know much about the law rather than sort of the academia stuff?
2: He certainly gave us great advice and, you know, he may not have gone the usual route but he certainly ended up with an office or a chamber's That looked straight out of uh, Dickens, uh, as I was explaining. You know, piles of unorganised documents, all wrapped up in red tape—the original red tape, I guess. But it it was literally like going back in time. But he was a very, in my experience, with him was a, a very smart, sharp chap,
1: extremely astute. And as I say, he was the only one with the courage to actually sort of stand up and say. Hey man, what's happening in the immortal phrase at the start of a damned album? So you mentioned oil there, and I mentioned chemistry, and getting your hands sticky. So you were at BP, and you had one of these amazing career journeys that sort of semi-lifetime oil men do, and you've been absolutely everywhere in the world in, in search of the sticky stuff. What took you from there to here? Where did you go first? Give us the travel agency so, uh, thing before we get into the exciting the stuff.
2: Agency. So I started life in Hull, up north. Is Hull in Yorkshire? Hull is in New Yorkshire. At the time it wasn't though. It ah, was Humberside. There we go. <laughs> it has now returned. So from Hull, moved down to London. From London uh, as we deregulated the gas market, which is very relevant to, to today. Um, the little business was BP Gas Marketing, then Alliance Gas. But then that gave me the opportunity to move into the upstream gas out in Jakarta. Looking after um, Indonesia's growing game that we had there. And then from there up to Aberdeen, from Aberdeen back down to London to mergers and acquisitions. But all of these things, once I'd left Hull, they were all very much commercial roles. So you know, understanding different people's positions and different partners, etc. was very key. So from Aberdeen, as I say, back down to London, mergers and acquisitions, so buying and selling companies, always have your best friend as lawyers. Bankers, then out to the Middle East, based in Abu Dhabi, commercial director for the Middle East and all the operations we have there. 9-11 happened, so the guy who was running Pakistan has evacuated up to Aberdeen, couldn't run Pakistan from there, so I ended up running that as well from Abu Dhabi.
1: We watched quite a few videos of, of street food in Pakistan recently over the weekend due to a dispute about the best way of cooking chicken karahi. Karahi, yes. Yes, buttered chicken with ghee, actually. So uh, we watched quite a few. The uh, the food is supposed to be uh, amazing up there. It is. As long as you survive, of course. I mean, everybody, everybody I never knew that went to India or, or Pakistan on
2: a holiday sort of invariably got ill. I think you'll, you'll, you'll end up ill most places that you go. <laughs> including Hull. Uh, I've never been to Hull actually. Hull's an adventure and it's a, a totally different story but yeah. So out to Abu Dhabi, then was given the opportunity to go off to Stanford. After Aberdeen, uh, moved into the Group Leadership uh, Development Programme at, at BP. So that took me out to the Middle East. And then as part of that you you get to go to either Stanford, Harvard or INSEAD, you, you pick. Oh very nice. Uh, so I chose uh, Stanford had a great time there, relevant to the point you were asking about uh, how I ended up with the, the business that we're in. But it's where I learned about the ownership effect. Um, it was just one small piece of my time at Stanford, but it's something that uh, stayed with me. So post-Stanford, moved back to London, commercial director for Middle East, so Africa, uh, Russia, Caspian, and Middle East. Um, so interesting times from earthquakes, tsunamis, through to black economic empowerment in Africa and how the business had changed, and also a yeah, very interesting time in Russia.
1: So all of these stories we could dine out on for quite a long time, but getting on to the exciting stuff of equity management, so what was it that made you wake up one morning in 2014 and, and think, oh, bollocks to all that, I'm, I'm going to do equity management. That's far more interesting than
2: all this sort of Caspian yeah. Sea stuff. It wasn't quite that straightforward, I guess. My mum and dad passed away in 2012 took me a year to decide what I wanted to do and uh, change my life, but yeah, my kids were growing up and I I, I was spending all my time on aeroplanes, as you can imagine, with what we were talking about earlier. And I decided that yeah, I was going to, you yeah, because I'd wanted to be an, uh, an entrepreneur as a kid. At the end of uni, I had this idea of computer-aided real estate, took it to the whole Enterprise Council. They had no notion of what I was trying to do. I won't go down that one, but as a consequence, I thought, yeah, I'll go and work for a couple of years. I got this offer from BP. I'll come back and um, do it with my own money. It took a lot longer to have the, the resources or the desire to really go back to the entrepreneurial space. But I thought rather than just go, going off and join another corporate or something back in the UK, I thought I'd um, just invest in some early stage businesses. So put a few pounds to the side and then look for companies to invest in, but clearly with no relevance. So the oil industry doesn't prepare you well for supporting or investing in startups. It's
1: not such a small company, BP or Shell. Or...
2: They're not. So the notion was, you know, what I'll do is put few quid to the side and use that to actually build a business so that I could understand what the challenges were so that money that we then invested into other companies was not just dumb money. It had some understanding of the, the challenges, so the notion was put a quarter of a million to the side. Two years later, it'll be worth billions, and I'll have learnt a lot. It took a little bit longer than uh, two years, and it took probably ten times as much of my money to uh, deliver. But the re- the reason why I chose equity was that yeah, it was the world I'd grown up in. The, you know, the latter 20-odd years in, in, in oil was all about you know, deals, it was equity, buying businesses, selling businesses, setting up leadership teams, etc. But then also, coming back to that piece that we mentioned about um, Stanford and the ownership effect. So I thought this, this would be a good way of putting that stuff together. See if we can build a, a business around sharing equity in a safe and stable way. The first version of Vested 2014 was essentially a marketplace. And was Vested, by the way, was, it, was that a typo when you sort of filled in the form at company's house? Did
1: you forget there were two E's in, or was it just cheaper? Not at all.
2: It, <laughs> it wasn't about cheap. It was about being able to get it. You know, in the old days, the whole notion was get a name for a business that hasn't already been registered.
1: I know. I did this in 1998 and, and got Panartis, and it took me half a day to get to
2: Panartis, which is my company. <laughs> well, well done for, for, for managing to do that. But for, for us, it, was, it took a long while to, to get to Vested, but because... Firstly, names are more to do with whether you can get the .com, yes, um, right. the domain, rather than the, the, the company name at company's House. Okay, so just one point before
1: we move on to the, the equity management, which is, I'm sure most listeners understand equity at a high level and understand you've got to kind of keep track of it, and how hard can it be is probably what's coming through their mind, and, and, and you can tell them. Was it your commercial background and experience uh, that you were explaining, or was it some kind of contact with founders and finding that all these founders... this very unsexy headache about how they keep track of all these options schemes or where the equity is and all all this kind of stuff that led you to create that
2: it actually started from seeing uh, and in india it's quite uh, prevalent the whole notion of sweat equity and seeing how many times that could go wrong whether it was a founder being promised by somebody that they would get them this government contract or or that but yeah you have to give me a, a certain amount of equity now and then the quid pro quo never coming to pass, or indeed a lot of founders promising people equity and then for some reason or other mysteriously never being possible for it to come to pass. So it was about understanding that relationship of equity deals, and selling sweat equity, it being very difficult to do. So that's where the, the original version of Vested came from. It was leaning on that thing about early stage founders not having money, but having these units of equity and not having all the resources or knowledge that they needed, uh, and being able to access people who will have that knowledge and expertise, and maybe be able to trade on the back of equity rather than cash.
1: Okay, well, we'll come on at the end to the whole sort of advisor landscape um, in terms of who you can go and ask, because prima facie, if I was doing something yesterday, I might have thought, oh, I'll ask my accountant or I'll ask my lawyer or something. But let's discuss the the whole um, landscape at the end. So let's just start with the, the super big picture then, which is that... I think everybody listening will have heard of share options and they will have heard of equity and a lot of companies and heard of management and all these kind of things and going back to my failing to find an elegant phrase for sort of internal company equity management, is there first a, a nice, simple, clear phrase about that because when I hear equity management as an ex fund manager I think oh yes you 've got equity fund management and you 've got bond management, but that 's not what we 're talking about so firstly is, is there a phrase, and then secondly. Why would a founder out there, or somebody who's going to found a company tomorrow, why, why would they need the likes of a, a, a vested? What, what are the whole dimensions and aspects I mean it's so complicated? You can't just bung it on a spreadsheet. Like, um, I've got a spreadsheet, and I've got equity, and it's my, I've got two shares or whatever, one share. I don't need anything else. That's, that's all. There's no options. There's no, no nothings. So, yeah, so well, is, is there a simple phrase for it, or would you just use equity management because that sounds okay?
2: I, I think the, the fact is that nobody... Real knows of such phrases because they often don't think about it, and that's why so often there are so many errors when people look at uh, their equity. But equity management is is a phrase. I guess it's become common parlance now. But it's it's about all the different types of equity that you have in a business, or the derivatives of it. So you talked about options. So simplest thing is a, a share in a business is a, a portion of the business, uh, an option. Is the right to have a share at some point in the future based on a certain quid pro quo that you
1: provide? And typically a, a, a micro company that started tomorrow would... Have a spreadsheet or, or, or a Frank packet and we write 100 shares. We start a business tomorrow, okay, you've got 50 and I've got 50, and we'll get a lawyer sometime, but I trust you and you trust me. And then someone joins tomorrow's CTO and we give, we give him five, we give him two and a half each or something like that. So it will start like many things uh, in terms of the governance of the small company in a really sort of simple fashion. But then in terms of when I've interviewed people about the board and all that kind of stuff, I think there are many founders who said, yeah, we had that. And then, oh, my God, it turns a complete disaster. And then the VCs turn up and say, well, get rid of all these peasants, all these angels. We don't want them on the board, them. we want to clear out the cap table. And, you know. and then I've met many founders at whatever stage it is, whether it's the A's or the B's, I don't know, for whom it suddenly, suddenly out of, out of the blue, turns into a complete headache and a, and a right ball ache and a right nightmare. So that's the experience people I've had, which is like, yeah, we had a spreadsheet. What's he talking about? And then,
2: oh, my God, it's a nightmare. I should have had him before, you know. Even when you start, you know, that little partnership that, you know, what, what happens if I decide to go off and spend the next uh, six months in Ashram and leave you with 50% of the shares uh, doing all the work? How equitable or fair is that? So even at the, the start, having the structure in place so, so that it's not just down to trust, Trust in Alaba, tie up your camel, as they say in the Middle East. <laughs> Indeed. But it's about making sure that even from the very start, you have an understanding and the relationship of who gets what footing what is structurally in place so from day one.
1: Let's start with a case study then, rather than the sort of, a, you know, a PowerPointy top-down decomposition uh, of the field. So, that's a very good point. Now, thank you for mentioning it. So, the business we're starting tomorrow, I'm going to get a lawyer on the case, and they're going to make sure that it has a sort of section that says, dear ifty, if you go off to an ashram for six months, I get your shares. Thank you very much. I love, Mike. But I might not have then covered something else, which is if you go off sailing for six months, because there wasn't a course on that. So, just generally for new founders and, and co-founders, often found, found businesses, and often, I think, or generally end up splitting up to a certain extent. So these things are super important. Very, very important. common. So what is what is the generic, just at a very high-level approach, what's the generic approach to a situation like that? You and I form a business tomorrow. You, because you've been in this world, you know all the sort of clever stuff, and the VCs know all the clever stuff as well. So how would I handle that? So it?
2: historically, what you'd do is you'd um, put together a shareholder agreement. There's lots of ways of drawing them off, off the internet as well at the moment. So, But Putting them together is, is a difficult thing. What we've put together, and this is just one element of it, is what we call an agile partnership or you know a prenup for founders. So that there's an understanding when you build the when you start the business, this is what Mike's gonna do, this is what IFTI's gonna do, this is their contribution. So we avoid the notion of whether IFTI goes off to an Ashram or goes off sailing. It's about this is what you committed to deliver to the business. You get a certain amount of shares for doing that thing. If you don't do that thing, we need to have a, a structure in place that will allow us to pull those shares back. And that is already... So in, in the structure that we've already put together for this, which is called an Agile Partnership, does all that for you. You just meet up with your friends, you agree on what you're going to do, make the understanding, and it can be a, a short-term understanding, you know, six months 12 months and then you can add to that on on route but there's a clear understanding of what each of you is going to be delivering whether it's just time based or delivery based based on what you actually deliver versus what you promised there is then a very straightforward easy adjustment uh, of equity using the agile partnership on vested
1: okay well let's let's start looking at that so you've spoken about how the origins was with sweat equity but And this is still very much the case. We form a business tomorrow. We're not going to be drawing a salary the day after. But especially in the sort of fintech world where friends and families round is needed fairly soon because they need lots of computers or lots of techies or or something like that, they'll raise money and there'll be some money there. The generic thing, going back to you and I form a partnership tomorrow or business tomorrow, is that for the sake of argument, we might both put 10 grand in to pay for the sort of office parties we'll have every day. And out of that, we may actually pay ourselves a salary. So in the case where you've buggered off to the ashram, then you're not going to be drawing your salary because you're not turning up Monday to Friday in the office or in your pyjamas on your computer at home or whatever people do these days. So you won't get the salary, but you will still be a shareholder and quite right too, because you were were part of it at the beginning. Now, I'll give an example. So the first company I joined way back in the day in, in Bath, my first company, there were three managing directors Two of them were active in the, uh, in the business, and the third was a sleeping partner who wasn't active. They had a third, third, third of the company, even though one of them never came in, it's just the other two drew salaries. So obviously, at a simple level, we can say there's equity and there's income, and okay, they're different, I know, because the income comes into your bank and blah, 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 and it's just an employment contract. But there's a certain extent to which they're kind of fungible in the very early business, aren't
2: they? I mean, everything's kind of fluid, it's, really. It, it, it is very fluid, and that's why when you're putting cash into a business, that has to be seen quite differently to putting in Endeavour or or other things. There are a lot of really great tools around this and one done by Mike Moyer who does Slicing Pie is a really good tool for how to distribute equity based on people bringing Endeavour and cash to to the table. But irrespective of whether there was a, a salary, the salary is a small part of the early stage business and so most early stage businesses, if we're looking at that stage of an Agile partnership, there's nobody going to be drawing salaries necessarily at that stage. You have to have enough money coming in or enough revenue from the business operations to pay a salary.
1: The exception to that would be, uh, and I've seen this a number of times, consultancies that self-boot because they've just got the blah, blah and and maybe they've got the odd PowerPoint. So they don't need much capital and they can get a client fairly soon because they know so-and-so is going to employ them. And before you know it, you've got the cash flow Coming in. anyway, there's always exceptions.
2: Even in that construct, so you've got three guys uh, who decide to set up a, a consultancy together. We had a really good example of this. I won't give the name of the entity, but there was one guy Axel who would do all the winning of business as well as the consultancy stuff as well, and yet there were three. Friends who'd set it off and everybody was getting the same reward whereas Axel was putting in that additional endeavour about winning the business as well as executing. So is that fair? If you do not adjust and make it fair, then partnerships break down. Having a simple way of accommodating that change, which is what the Agile Partnership does, it then allows even something that's changed materially from when you started off, because it's going to remain equitable, because the structure that we put in place, it means that that relationship can continue. Yes,
1: and, and going back to your commerciality, wearing your BP hat, so there, are, there are many things. And I think I was just getting hung, hung up on the word equity, which has got a very technical meaning to me, in that I think the word equity means equity, uh, it being something different from income. But the two can be fungible. So just taking this consultancy as an example, and I'm thinking, oh, two or three off the top of my head, they had an income share arrangement so let's say three people set it up they own a third a third a third they have their own charge out rate, and they get paid that if they're on the thing uh, and if you produce a piece of business you get 20% of the, the value of the deal and so they, they deal with it on the income side nevertheless I think it should be clear to the, the listeners just kicking these examples around that if you're setting up a partnership or you're setting up a business or you're setting up a consultancy and especially if you're setting up something that's going to be capital intense as, as many uh, tech businesses are and especially if you're doing it the first time around There's a hell of a lot of things that you haven't heard about and one of the things you absolutely should do (laughs) before day one is check out the likes of you guys and other guys and, you know, the 50 Top Blogs and and blah, 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 blah. Otherwise, you're walking to a a landscape filled with sort of crocodile pits and landmines and rickety bridges and, and all this kind of stuff. And getting back to... The digital example I gave, where I I spoke to founders when I was researching the book, I don't know, four or five years ago, maybe five years ago now. I wasn't specifically asking them about this question, but the ones that mentioned it, it was kind of, yeah, we had a spreadsheet. and Oh, fuck, it's a disaster. Oh, my God. This digital thing tends, I think, to happen in landscapes when you haven't got a clear what you're doing. So for the sake of argument, you're going walking somewhere north even further north than than Bradford and Hull, and you're walking over a frozen lake. And you're walking, oh, this is normal, we like going for a walk. And then suddenly you fall in the freezing water. And it was a sudden thing you fall in the freezing water. But what you didn't realise is that you were running the risk the whole period of time. It's just a certain event hadn't happened, like in this case the ice thinned out, And the examples of roughly everybody I know in fintech, because it started pretty naively. A lot of these fintechs back in 2010 and that, before you formed and when people were quite naive and perhaps didn't expect to see the sort of Gazillions of capital flood in, which only magnifies the fear and the greed and all that. But there seemed to be amongst my sort of buddies back in the day, let's say five years plus, very random distribution of whether when you left the company, whether it was voluntarily or involuntarily, you kept the equity. So people would say to me, five years plus, I go, oh, yeah, I'm moving on to this. I'm bored of that. It's better off. I can be paid more. And I said, oh, I keep your equity. Oh, yeah. God, that's luck, isn't it? And some would say, had the same conversation with someone else the day after, Give it. no, it's part of the contract, couldn't keep it. You know, so literally, and, that, and that's as an employee, so I'm not just sp- speaking to the founders listening to this show, I'm also sp- speaking to you as an employee. All these little terms and conditions on page 99, produced by Lord Sumption's sort of uh, uh, equivalents these days, they've got lots of detail hidden in the detail. Now, and that's before you get to those very legally attuned people called venture capitalists who use every trick in the book to tilt the equitable table in, should we say, as inequitable as a fashion as they could possibly make it. Especially when you're doing a pre-IPO raise where they've got all sorts of clawbacks, terms and conditions and guaranteed returns and stuff. I don't think that was a question. I think I was just sort of it a random shooting... But, but it's,
2: a, it's an interesting point. I guess that's... Although we started Vested in a way to allow people to share equity with all those different people who help them build their business... What we ended up realising is, as soon as you start doing that, the cap table gets really you find complicated. How cap table for people who hadn't heard the phrase? A cap table is basically the list of all the people who have an interest, an equity interest, a share interest in your business. Including share options. So, typically it doesn't always include share options, but when you're looking at a fully diluted cap table, i.e. where everything is included, not just the issued capital,
1: or but press also or whatever.
2: The, the promises of capital, which is essentially what an option is, that's included. In it. So it's a list of everybody who has a stake in your business, fully diluted, what has all the options and warrants that you, you mentioned there.
1: And just in passing, because I mentioned the phrase clearing up the cap table, which you'll understand better than yeah. I, but my informal understanding of clearing up the cap table is some venture capitalist comes along. You and I formed a business and then we got a thousand mates and they each had little yeah. piddly bits and a million silly share schemes. We just made them at one by one and all that. And so VC goes, oh, for God's sake, you've got such a messy cap table. It's going to be a pain in the ass for us. We've got to tell all these people what's going on. We need AGMs and all that. Just, just, just try and get rid of it somehow. So having, having a tidy cap table is actually quite an important thing for doing
2: your I think it's useful but no longer imperative. So historically, I absolutely agree you know, the, the VC would come in. And there's a couple of reasons for clearing up the cap table. Firstly, if those people who were involved in early, early doors are no longer involved, then basically, is there a need for them to, to be there? Do they still want a stake in the business? Or would they actually rather take their money and, and walk off elsewhere? But yeah, historically, when you've got a big cap table, there is a big management job with it. For us, it's easy as pie. <laughs> because every shareholder that you want to talk to or communicate with It's essentially free on Vested. You can talk to them. So the cap table having 100, 200 people on there is no longer the big issue. It is, but it is more from a a VC who wants to add value to the business, invest money, and wants to see the upside of what they're getting. And anybody who's not adding to the business or what they would class as dead equity, they'd rather they be out of the picture.
1: So it's a very good example of where technology has changed things. I'll say it's probably five years ago or so, and these people obviously didn't know of Vested. But once technology comes along, something which is a pain in the arse suddenly becomes a no big deal. You know, it's like you've got an Excel spreadsheet, there's 200 rows in it, so what? You you press a button,
2: they all get emailed. (laughs) Absolutely, Mike. I mean, you're, you're spot on. The fact is, what used to be very costly and complex, the whole essence of Vested has been around taking that cost and complexity away and allowing every founder, every business to make sure that everybody who is important to building it and making it a success has some skin in the game, is vested in its success.
1: Right, okay, so look, So the the first bit, which was predominantly from the perspective of uh, of what is all this about, how has it been changing with the technology, and pretty much from a founder perspective, um, but also from a funder perspective, if you're putting money into a business, it might be quite nice to know who else is there. I also touched on minor matters like, Earning a living and being paid, and also this other category of people who the vast majority of the world called employees. So, we then might look at the whole idea of sharing equity. And going back to this first company I worked for in Bath, I joined as number 12, and 18 months later, I was number 55, actually, a kind of consultancy company, really. Because of how the valuation of the company had changed, even though I was like a newbie, got bugger all share options. 18 months later, because the valuation had gone through the roof, I actually had more equity than somebody who was joining at a high level. 74 levels above the hierarchy than me. And, and that caused all sorts of challenges. And then the opposite end of the spectrum from NuCo's, there was a bank where I did a, a couple of gigs, and like all these things, you're, you're told, that, oh, we've got this problem, and can you sort out, yeah, I can sort out, and you wonder what the real problem is. And the real problem this organisation, and I've seen it one or two, was that the way they designed their share schemes in the past and what happened to the share price and all that, and things like when it's vested and blah, 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 basically meant you had a whole tier of management who were worth a niffing fortune but couldn't take the money now, they're just sitting in their offices. They weren't going to bloody do anything. So I can't emphasise enough, and you can try and emphasise even more than, than that, that what sounds simple at the beginning, like you and I start a business, we're both working five days a week, we should share it, that's nice and simple, yeah. handshake. My word is my bond days. And oh, we've got some new staff, let's give them some options and interest as well. What is in principle simple can turn into a bloody nightmare, whether you're a tier one bank or whether you're in UCO 18 months later.
2: We'll come on to the tier one bank in a second, but as you're building a business, more and more people are going to get involved. If you believe in the ownership effect, and we talked about earlier, that notion that if you have a stake in an enterprise, your relationship with it changes, you bring more to the table, then you want everybody to feel that ownership effect. You want them to to be vested in, in that outcome. When you have employees, that notion of those who join you in the earlier stages, every business is a risk. As the business is mature, become more stable, that risk diminishes. So those who joined you early on are taking a bigger risk coming to join you and therefore deserve a bigger reward. So part of that will be the amount of shares or options that they receive at that point, but also they'll get them at a much lower price or the option price will be much lower because the business hasn't got that value. So over time, yeah, new people will typically get less in number of shares. And indeed, the, the, the value of those shares or the upside potential may have diminished, but it depends on where you come on the, the journey. The risk and reward is what equity is about. You could lose everything. Even in uh, tier one banks, those shares can go to zero as well. So it's a risk when you're joining an enterprise and it's a reward associated with that that you're taking.
1: Yes, and that's generically
2: correct, and I wouldn't disagree with the word
1: you have said. In this specific instance, it was 40 years ago, which is the extremely early days for doing entrepreneurially things. The world was not entrepreneurial at all in the 70s. Quite the opposite. It was still lifetime employment, so it was a very early startup. up They just cocked it up. I was a new graduate I wasn't taking any risk I'd have taken another job (laughs) it wasn't like I was moving as a CTO from Revolut to the CTO for Mike and Ifty tomorrow there was no risk at all it's just a new graduate they cocked it up they hadn't realized the shares were going to go up that much once they started generating revenues and all that kind of stuff but again that just comes back to the point that these things need to be well designed so just talking to the employee's perspective let's just sort of going from 30,000 feet back down to the ground and the rubber hitting the road let's say a listener out there is working for a tier one or a tier three tier doesn't really matter a bank and some startup offers them a job purely as a kind of this is what you'd advise your niece or your nephew okay look out for this this and this and and I really think you should get you know that.
2: So the first thing is the amount and as we just mentioned the the amount will vary depending on what stage or of evolution the the, the business is at the earlier on. You're taking a big risk so you, you'll get a larger amount. As things progress, one of the things that comes up in, in options in particular quite heavily and potentially in what we call conditional shares is whether you can hold them when you leave. So good lever, bad lever terms. So typically if somebody is a good lever, they'll typically be able to hold onto the shares or at least the benefit of the shares that are vested at that point. By vested, it means that I give you the opportunity to earn 100 shares if you stay with me for the next five years. I'd want more than that, mate. <laughs> Depends on the, 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 the number of shares I've issued, obviously, Mike. But if I say that these will vest equally over the next five years, so it'll be 20 shares for each, each year. Let's say you decide to leave after three years and I've given you the opportunity for a good lever provision in, in the agreement... Then, after three years, you'll have 60 of those shares will have vested and you may have the opportunity to walk away with those. There are some, and actually for the most common scheme in the UK, which is EMI, Enterprise Management Incentives for Startups in the UK, I would say 70% of those schemes are exit only. Meaning? Meaning that you can only exercise those shares at the point of an exit and often they will not have the opportunity for you to hold on them if you leave because the whole point in, in EMI is around holding on to those staff talent can move around early-stage businesses don't have the opportunity necessarily to give you the cash but what they can give you is the upside in, in the business and the scheme that the government have put together allows businesses to do two things firstly give all that, that upside reward with only a 10% tax hit so Let's say the shares go from £1 to £10, that £9 growth, only going to be subject to 90 pence tax. The best way of rewarding anybody in, uh, in business at the moment. The other side of that is that the government... Will allow you to offset the whole of that nine pound growth against corporation tax. So there's all sorts so, of clever I mean, rinky dinks. I
1: mean, as usual, we need to move on. But I mean, I think there's a whole thing here, which is it's this whole bloody control agenda playing out again, isn't it? It would be very tempting as a founder to think, oh, I want to like you know lock everybody into the company unless I fire them and all that kind of stuff, and not let them leave. But that can rebound disastrously, as I said about this tier one bank, because you get a bunch of disgruntled folk who won't leave.
2: Yeah, and then they're locked in. Why why do you want these folk who are not... uh... Not really
1: making the boat go a lot faster.
2: Yeah, exactly. So as a founder, you need to understand each of the individuals that you're going to be giving equity rewards to, and they're going to be different. And one of the benefits of, of Vested is that every single person can have a tailored proposition without... As I said, the normal cost and complexity. Let's say a sales director will have a different reward mechanism and tangibility to somebody who's an administrative assistant w- within the organisation. They're, they're very different um, roles, very different uh, tangibility of what they're going to bring, and therefore you need to be able to tailor the reward for that individual.
1: Yes, indeed. And you know, this point you mentioned about the equity again, it's a, it's a complexity. Uh, of the exit thing sorry, this point you made about the exit there's a complexity around the exit which is that yes we know what exit means but um, like most things it's dependent upon the circumstances so if you've got a period of a decade where there's absolutely absolute gazillion dollars yeah. being thrown at fintech things happen very very rapidly let's say the next 10 years is going to be um, crap economically which the rate this government's going it will be and uh, the VC winter continues continues and it's hard, hard to raise money exits may suddenly take 10 times longer than they were so all these things are are changeable over time so look we're going to come on to vested now and and in particular the competitive landscape i mean obviously lawyers do all these sort of things and accountants can give you advice and we haven't actually asked you if d what whether vested has got a a software a product or whether it's got uh, services and or both or whatever so we'll talk about that Uh, In the second, which is that anybody listening to this show who's thought, oh, I didn't give that sufficient thought for this business I'm forming tomorrow, I better actually extract a digit, uh, has got a bit of a guide about where they might go. But before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there, my brand partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at then The your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. Right, so if the let's just start by you telling the audience what... Product services, Vested has, V-E-S-T-D dot com. If they go there today and look at it, what could they, if they wanted to do, buy from you today? And then you can talk about how that relates to lawyers, and accountants and your USPs and what you need more of to be even bigger and better than you are today.
2: So Vested is a share scheme and equity management platform. It's not what's known as a pure SaaS, i.e. you, you input to the computer and the computer says yes or no and it does it we what's known as a guided SaaS, so we have a brilliant team of customer success who will help make sure that the thing that you're trying to do with your equity is done. You have the right agreements in place, the compliance in particular, because yeah, anything that's non-compliant loses half of the value potentially, or even all of the value of the reward that you're looking to construct if it's not maintained. So Vested is a guided SaaS, so it's a combination of brilliant software, a brilliant platform, and excellent team to support.
1: Which reminds me that of another firm that has a similar model, which we were on a few years ago, called Fairwill, And you can do your wills with them online. And it's not just a piece of tech, because you say you want to leave it all to the Battersea Dogs home. You will get a call by some of them checking saying, do you really want to do that? And, and by the way, you forgot one of your children and, and this kind of stuff. So it's interesting that how tech is evolving is that... I always think of this as old-fashioned milk. In the old-fashioned milk, you're a similar age to I, used to have the milk and the cream at the top. You can only really digitise the milk. The cream is something that can't be digitised, and to get the value that we get from a platform like that or a platform like Farewell, you do need a human being who knows some shit, looking at this and going, are you sure you meant this, and what about that?
2: So so there's a couple of things with regards to this. Firstly, we are regulated, so we cannot give advice per se, but we can share all the knowledge and the experience that we have gained uh, over the time of building the business, talking to thousands of founders and businesses, understanding the problems that typically happen with equity. And it, it, it is yeah, phenomenal, the n- number of knots that you can get into. But as I was saying, in terms of the, the, the software and the human element, It's about when you're talking about shares, when you're talking about tax, because all of these things are interrelated, when you're talking about the lifeblood of the company, the legal aspects in there as well, you need to make sure that you're feeling that it's being done right. And that's where the guided aspect of it comes. You can either use pretty much the pure software through the platform, but you also have that comfort that when when things get a bit sticky, you've got somebody to talk to and that guidance is available to you. We talk about the fact that you don't need lawyers or accountants to use Vested and you don't. The earliest of companies can use Vested without seeking a guidance from lawyers or accountants but every company needs accountants and we would not suggest that they shouldn't go to them but there's certain things that we can do better and certainly around the equity management that's very much the case and indeed a lot of accountants use Vested to do that. When it comes to lawyers Lawyers are phenomenally valuable to every business, but you need to understand what you ask the lawyers to do. If you ask them to do sort of stuff that vested could do, whether it's setting up plans, etc., the more day-to-day stuff, why would you deploy a lawyer's brain, At a lawyer's ex- expenses, expenses to do it? Save your lawyer spend for the things that lawyers and lawyers alone can do, and they're brilliant. And indeed, as businesses become more complex, they may well indeed go to the lawyers to set up the, the share scheme, but then they'll bring it to Vested and have it managed through Vested because it's an equity management platform and, uh, and share schemes, complex things to, to keep compliant with. And so managing it through some, something like Vested, it just takes all that noise away from you.
1: Excellent. And as you said, you founded um, nine years ago. You've got thousands of clients. In terms of the plans for the future, what do you need to be even bigger and better than you are today? Are you just in the UK? Are you going to expending in international? What's the outlook?
2: We have great opportunities for the future. We're looking to do more and more things to support the business businesses that we support today here in the UK. Going earlier in, into the journey of equity management and making it easier for very early startups without hardly any cash through to managing those businesses that grow with us in their longer journey. We've also started looking beyond the UK as well, because the, the problem that we solve is prevalent across the, the planet. There are certain geographies that we may try out first, rather than going for the world in one. Um, and we've already started on that, that journey, Mike. But it's it's, a, it's an exciting adventure.
1: Yes, and I look forward to having you back in 10 years' time, maybe, when your empire is as big as... BPs in as many uh, countries. I mean, off the top of my head, going back to when I looked at these things, there are roughly five categories of company law around the world and practice within, for example, the English law uh, system uh, is different from the German law system and the French law system, let alone local definitions and and understandings of what the word uh, equitable means anyway. But uh, that's been very helpful to me, and uh, I'm sure the listeners, IFTI, I think, like many of these topics where I feel I have some understanding. I have some understanding, but like everything, the more you sort of zoom in and zoom in and drill into the pixels, the more that you realise that in the complex world we are, where the law isn't just an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, there are lots of pitfalls for those people that aren't doing enough reconnaissance and involving the right uh, support up front. And I think that where I to do something in this field, I think that I would be ten times more careful than I might have been yesterday as a result of uh, speaking to you. So uh, on behalf of myself and the listeners, uh, I thank you for that and wish you every success in the future.
2: Thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening. If you are in
1: need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional, FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at If you just need one-off advice in these areas, via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman.
0: We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride. Watching a happy moon ride. <laughs> To come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so gray With the pain of the air watch the firelight dance with me 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 watch the firelight dance with me.